This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. Just by way of introduction, this week's episode is undoubtedly our most intellectually concentrated we are featuring a brilliant scientist, Dr. Jeremy England. Anytime you have one person who has attended or taught at Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, Princeton, and MIT, you know you're in for an intellectual tour de force. And that's exactly what this episode is. Those who love science will be in absolute heaven. Those who are not as disposed towards those areas of knowledge, I think we'll still appreciate a uniquely brilliant mind and be inspired by the Jewish commitment and unique perspective that this particular guest represents. This episode, due to its nature, is also a little bit longer than most others. Due to the organic nature of the material of the content as a whole, we decided to preserve it as one single episode rather than split it. And I hope you'll stick with it all the way through. I believe you will feel rewarded by a very rich and ennobling listening experience. Without further ado, we are here with Dr. Jeremy England, Associate Professor of Physics at MIT and committed Jew. How you doing, Jeremy? Doing very well, Sam. How are you? Doing awesome. Thank God. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been reading stories about you for the last, I don't know, year or two, and then I've come across in various media, both secular, popular media, as well as different Jewish media. And uh, as soon as I started this podcast, I knew right away that you're someone I wanted to speak to. And it took me a while to, to locate the contact information. I was emailing with another MIT employee with a similar last name and because uh, I kind of guessed, guessed your email. But uh, I'm glad we finally got you. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So Jeremy, tell us, where did you grow up? What's kind of your own personal biography or personal background? Sure. So um, I was born in Boston and I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. Um, my father is now retired, but he was for many years a professor on the economics department at UNH, which is in Durham. It's like in the seacoast area of New Hampshire, about an hour and a half north of Boston. And I guess if we're talking about my family's connections with the Hadouts and things of that nature, I guess the story would be that my mother was born in Poland uh, right after the war. Wow. Uh, her parents had both survived by escaping into the Soviet Union and, and lost most of the family that they left behind and then they met in Poland after they came back after the war was over. Um, and so then her family were in Poland until uh, the late 50s and then they first were refugees in West Germany and then they came to the US in the early 60s. And so my mother's sense of connection with, I would say, Jewishness as a kind of national or, or ethnic affiliation was very strong but I think she didn't get a lot of exposure to it as a, a praxis or a system of beliefs. Uh, it was very cultural. And that was partly because I think her parents, like many of their generation, were very disillusioned by what they lived through. My grandfather, for example, had been 
a very religiously educated person as a, a young Jew in Poland, but then by the time he was um, an adult with a family, he had become estranged from that and didn't return to it until much later in life. And, and so my mother at the time when she was ready to get married, she met my father in a context where they were sort of more interested in political organization. And my, my father's family were all descended from Swedish Lutheran immigrants to the United States who had come in the late 19th century. And so, you know, when they met and got married, it wasn't something that I think was obviously um, important to my mother to raise her, her children with Judaism as a, or, or Torah as a sort of a guiding set of principles for life. But then at the same time, I think she actually had like a very strong sense of being Jewish and not being able to let go of it. So I think for me and my sister growing up, you know, we lived in places that didn't have a lot of Jews, especially once we were in New Hampshire. And it, in one sense, was not taking center stage in how we lived. Uh, and at the same time, I think I was constantly being kind of uh, steeped in or indirectly or accidentally or secretly exposed to a whole lot of worldview and attitudes that I got from my mother that were very, as I later discovered, rooted in, in Judaic ideas. And then my father was always just very encouraging um, and uh, supportive of anything that had to do with Judaism, more so than my mother in many ways. But I was not there. not not untypical for yeah, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, situations. That's, that's a common story. And so I reached adulthood having a sense of myself as being very secular in background and and not very heavily educated in the Jewish tradition. You know, I, I had a, a somewhat common experience in broad swaths in the U.S. where I learned to read Hebrew letters and had a bar mitzvah and put it all down and didn't really do much with it after that. Um, so it sounds like even though your father was raised Lutheran, he wasn't particularly religious in his No, faith. yeah, he had already turned away from that before he met my mother. And so um, I think he was just, whatever level of involvement she wanted and was comfortable with at a certain stage in our upbringing, he was happy with that. And so we went to a reform synagogue in New Hampshire when I was a kid. So I, it's not like I knew nothing at all about what Judaism was or what was in the Torah, but I, I knew relatively little. You know, we never had a Tanakh in the home. I didn't look in the Torah for any reason from the age of 13 until I was, I don't know, in my 20s. And, and it didn't occur to me that I should. But, you know, we had a, a Seder on Pesach, and I would sometimes remember to fast on um, and actually, so the, the fast forward was I, at the same time, was like very interested in math and science and uh, had a, a real affinity for it. And I was getting very intensely educated in that way while I was growing up. And especially once, you know, I, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate and afterwards I was um, studying in the UK as a Rhodes Scholar. And that was the first point at which I really kind of got like shocked in a way that made me wake up and ask what my identity as a Jew meant to me because... What was so shocking in, well, in England? Yeah, so I don't know. I, I, there were a few different intersecting things, but certainly I think a big part of it was just that there are so few Jews in New Hampshire that it just uh, isn't a natural subject of conversation in everyday life. Um, there are a lot more trees than people to start with, and then, you know, it, it gets sort of more sparse from there. And then being at Harvard, I think also I was just very focused on my studies. And also Harvard was, at the time, a campus where you had people like Ruth Weiss and Ellen Dershowitz, who I think were like very vocal 
faculty who are very supportive of Israel and very ardent defenders of Israel. And as I actually just uh, interviewed Alan Dershowitz uh, mm-hmm. the other week, so I got a, a, a clear and firm uh, grasp of that. Yeah, and I think that that created an atmosphere in retrospect that made sort of campus life, that, that kept it, relatively speaking, on an even keel with respect to that. I mean, so I would hear kind of scattered things having to do with Israel, but I, I didn't consider it like a, a topic that was of central interest to me. But then, you know, being on a college campus in Europe or in the UK. Um, in, that being Oxford? Yeah, yeah, in, in 2003. So it was like, you know, right after the US invasion of Iraq and around the time of the Second Intifada and the aftermath of that with again, like Operation Defensive Shield and and just like meeting all these people who were just breathing fire about Israel and the United States. And I think at the time I was just, you know, also kind of put back on my heels by that. And I think that my default disposition was to identify myself with the political left because of the history of how my parents had met and the things that they were you know, very inspired by when they were younger. I mean, they, they have very different politics now than they did then, but they were very far on the left when they met. And, I, and so as much as I was disposed to think that I had to have certain kinds of views about all of this stuff, there was something much more naked about the hostility towards Israel that just kind of stunned me. And I think I had an instinct suddenly to kind of want to sort of close ranks and, and not immediately feel it like very easy to side with someone who was approaching something that was very Jewish with such hostility. I suddenly also felt very ignorant and like I didn't know a lot. And so those kind of things all came to a head uh, at a time when I think it was maybe the, either the first or second year I was there. I guess maybe the first year I was there. I forgot, I had wanted to fast on, on Yom Kippur and I forgot what day it was, and I didn't. And I felt like an idiot and afterwards I was, I was talking with a friend of mine from college who had had a much stronger upbringing in connection with his sense of Jewish identity. And I, I was kind of searching around for like, what can I do? I wanted to make some kind of recompense. I was like, should I just fast the next day or something? <laughs> um, and and he, he sent me an essay, a beautiful essay uh, by Ruth Weiss actually about the Hebrew language, I think the title of which might have been the Hebrew imperative, and suggested me, why don't you start trying to learn Hebrew, or, you know, do something kind of constructive. And so I started learning modern Hebrew at that time, and it all kind of like grew from there. So I, I, I wanted to visit Israel, and when I did, I, I felt more at home there than I had anywhere else I'd ever been because of the people and because of the land. Um, and I, I think I fell in love with both. And at the same time, I was also starting to read people like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs sure. uh, while I was in the UK, um, who was perfect for me at the time in terms of being able to talk in the language of Western philosophy and categories, but make the case for the, the distinctiveness of the Judaic worldview. And, and I think as part of that process of study, I was discovering that there are all these things I thought were just like my personal way of thinking that were actually very authentically Jewish. And that made me want to learn more. And as I learned more, I think that the, the real kind of second stage rocket was discovering in Talmud Torah that there was just no comparison in terms of the intellectual depth that could be discovered there. Like it, it was, I think that I had grown up in an atmosphere of such complete absence of knowledge of Torah that all encounters that I had had with it made it seem sort of trivial to me or or I, I'd never had it explained to me by someone 
who understood it deeply. And I, when, right. I found it, when I started reading things, I was reading Soloveitchik and I was reading things by, by Rabbi Sachs and it suddenly be, was apparent to me that this was a, a deeper and more complex approach to the human condition that I'd encountered before. And so I became really addicted to it in that way. <laughs> at the same time, I was also, I also had this like huge powder keg of Shoah baggage of like, right. you know, I, where I had suddenly discovered that there were people in the world who still really hated Jews and wanted to kill them. And they were just attacking Israel instead of, you know, Jews in the places that they were attacked during World War II, which I, as, as crazy as it sounds to someone who knows about this stuff was a revelation to me because I really had just been very insulated from that knowledge. And so there was just like a very strong and potent intersection of a lot of different senses of familial and national connection and also intellectual affinity. And so by the time I left the UK and I started, uh, I was finishing my PhD um, in California at Stanford, I decided to start keeping Shabbat and Kashrut to some extent. And uh, since then, it's just been a very incremental process of learning and evolution of my, my attitudes about things. But I would say that with time, what has happened is my trust in Torah and my sense of knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu has definitely expanded and deepened um, and, and become a much more significant and really, I think, the most significant guiding set of principles or lenses through which to view life. I'm curious, you know, a couple things from the story. First of all, I'm I'm uh, not surprised entirely, but somewhat surprised. At, you know, Harvard is a very, very Jewish school in many ways with so many opportunities and resources. You know, the search for God at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> the title. At the time, I wasn't searching. I mean, when I was there, I was just studying biochemistry. I was studying quantum field theory or whatever. And that was what, was, what I was really excited about while I was there. And I didn't have... I think actually as an undergraduate, it's very easy to just exist in a bubble because right. you have such a clear sense of things that you can give your attention to where you can succeed where they're very challenging and they're very engrossing. And I didn't feel like there, I was doing some kind of search for meaning or whatever. And so I just like, I don't know, I think I went into Harvard Hill like twice the entire time I was there for a cold day and um, that was it. And I didn't feel like a lack because... Right. You know, I had friends and I had um, like a mission that I was on that had to do with my studies in, in the natural sciences and, and also in other subjects because I had like a, a lot of interest in, I don't know, learning philosophy or learning. But I don't know anything that was, I, I feel like there was a, an extra barrier to, to becoming interested in Jewish things because I didn't feel entirely positive about what I've been exposed to right. growing up. Like it was kind of a messed up and very limited and stunted version of the real thing. And I didn't know what part of that was real and what or authentic and what part of it was kind of just the result of the fact that I got a bad version of it. So, Do you think if somebody had approached you that was of significant intellectual caliber during your time at Harvard and in, engaged you in, in deeper study, do you think that would have resonated at that time or you just weren't ready? That's an interesting question. Um, in some ways, perhaps in the sense that I think there are aspects of just the raw intelligence of the understanding of something in Tanakh or in Chazal, if you, if you know how to draw it out, if I, could, if I could have seen that demonstrated, I think I would have been intrigued because I had some ability to sort of, to, to recognize the value of that. Although I will say also that I think my secular studies 
helped to prepare me for that. Because, for example, I took a, a course while I was an undergraduate that was taught by a classicist that was about Greek epics. And there was a lot of focus on close reading of texts. And that was my introduction to that subject, or to that approach to texts. And I think until I had gotten to practice to some degree how to read a text that way, I might have been less, had less of an ear for how it does that. And also, I think I had a lot of like personal activation barriers to getting really into this stuff. Like, I think that was the, the really critical role that the sort of wrecking ball of all the anti-Israel politics uh, and stuff in, in the UK was really important. That, you know, there's this um, Midrash that was always one of my favorites, which I think I first learned in one of these things that I read by Rabbi Sachs, that in the Midbar, in the desert, Bnei Israel were carrying two Aronot. They had two different arcs. And one of them had Luchot Abrit, it's the one we all know, the Tablets of the Covenant, and the other one had the Bonds of Yosef and Sadiq. And there's so many dimensions to this Midrash, and you can draw them out each one by one. But what I'll focus on now is that I think what it points to is that the existential situation of Bnei Israel is always this intertwining of the law and the ideas on the one hand, and just the sense of like, this is what I have for my ancestors, like the bones of Yosef on the other. And in any given generation, one or the other of those might be more what someone has actually been granted. I mean, that the possibility of relearning and, 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 and starting afresh with Torah is there because Torah ultimately is something that we have written down or it's part of an oral tradition to some degree and where there's, there can be a kind of a, a turn towards it where there's content that you can learn that you didn't receive from your ancestors. But at the same time, you know, we have a, a staying power in the sense that we do maintain a sense of connection to it for a few generations at least without even really get, getting much exposure to that. And I think I had this kind of like Bones of Yosef sort of thing where that was the thing that got ignited first, that I had understood the Shoah, like I understood what happened during World War II as this thing where it was like, I didn't, I didn't see the historical context. It was just some people hated Jews and they sort of, so to speak, came from outer space and <laughs> killed a whole bunch of them. And now it's over and it's gone and it doesn't mean anything except maybe that you, know, you shouldn't like fascism or something. Or like I had that kind of reading of it and I didn't think of it as, and in this generation, the same, you know, fire is burning or the same virus is out and about, but it just is in different guise. Kind of a light bulb moment for you when you started experiencing that vitriol and that venom at Oxford. Yeah, well, in reading Ruth Weiss, there's this book she wrote called If I'm Not For Myself, which I, I think was also a very important thing for me at a certain stage, because it, it's about this sort of the history of ideas and connection on the one hand with anti-Semitism and its evolution, and on the other hand, with socialism, liberalism, like different streams in 19th and 20th century thought. And it's a very cogent critique of the, I would say, common mistake that I think many Jews fall into of believing that antisemitism can be defeated by spreading a worldview of universal tolerance. Um, that sounds good. And in, in various generations, it, it attracted you know, many Jews to socialism in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, my grandfather was from one of these families where all the kids knew Esperanto. Like, we're going to all teach our kids this universal language that everyone speaks. You know, it's, it's this very... Um, utopian. Yeah, very utopian uh, and desperate idealism. And that, you know, has one guise and then it, it, it takes on a different form in a different generation. But I think that reading, you know, Weiss and then Sachs with his positive view of particularism 
right? And the value of separateness and the uniqueness of a nation that is small and sends itself on a, a particular mission uh, in its relationship to Hashem. That was a very potent combination for me intellectually. And once you went to Israel, it sounds like despite all the reading you had done in intellectual pursuit, it sounds like Israel was more of a, an emotional sort of reflexive well, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of that same point, essentially, that I think, you know, the, the sort of ancestral part, like I, I grew up in my a home that my mother created for me and my sister with many different associations that I had no idea where it came from or how common it was or that, it, you know, to what extent my mother's experience was a similar one to that of many others. But of course, you know, Israel, especially in the middle of the 20th century, was populated by a huge number of people who came from family backgrounds that were very similar. And so whether it's just like little things that one eats or little kind of stylistic or aesthetic things that, that felt like home to me, or, you know, issues of attitude or values, you know, the things that people consider most important. I don't know, it was just like hand in glove. Was there a place or a moment that really stuck out? Um, I don't know. I think that maybe lost to sort of deep storage of memory at this point. Because I think also I, I just, I went back again and again. And, and eventually I think also what happened is that I, I kind of expanded. Uh, there was this initial experience the first time I went, I'm thinking, wow, there's like a whole country of people who I have actually a lot in common with that I didn't even realize. And I think another thing that is, is true about that is that I felt more affinity in a sense for some things culturally in Israel than I had in my encounters with American Jewry. And I think that's because the majority of American Jewry didn't come to the US after the war. And as a result, there were some kind of just like differences in, in you know, people's culture a little bit. And I think Israel, because of the huge influx of refugees after the war that it had, some of that is kind of arbitrary because at the end of the day, I don't think that looking at things from the standpoint that I look at now, you know, liking certain kinds of chocolates or whatever, that's not Torah and that's not Yahadud. And like, if we forget that a thousand years from now, I don't think it's the end of the world. But for me, it was like a, a particular kind of thread that drew me right. towards Israel and, and it helped me realize that world Jewry was much more diverse than I had felt it to be in my kind of random encounters with Jews in the Northeastern United States right. growing up. Right. And that was just like a, I mean, and, but the, the ultimate, like a wonderful revelation was even, it was even more diverse than, you know, there are some people who came from Eastern Europe or whatever, they're Jews from all over the place. And some of them were carrying with them when they came back to Israel, treasures that I think had been culturally and aesthetically and in, in terms of approach to things like tefillah and various mitzvot that had been just like, wiped out in the largely, although not exclusively, European cataclysm that was the Shoah. And that was very important, too, because it, it gave me the sense of, like, there's these whole vistas I hadn't explored that I could, you know, start to learn about and then fall in love with in a way that, you know, I, there was, like, a common basis because of Torah, but where it was, like, very exotic and different as well. Now, of course, in, in parallel to this uh, spiritual journey, you were also traveling a scientific journey, um, getting your PhD, and uh, as you said, from very elite institutions, Harvard, Oxford, Stanford. What were you getting engaged in? Were there particular disciplines that you were really starting to hone in on? Have those endured? And what have been sort of your signature scientific pursuits or achievements to this point? 
Well, so I think pretty early on, like when I was in high school, I really liked physics and learning about theoretical physics. I enjoyed the beauty of, you know, the very simple parsimonious mathematical theory where you can be kind of surprised by your own imagination because you can discover these hidden consequences of simple assumptions and suddenly have all this predictive power from a very simple model. People who do theoretical physics are really junkies for the aesthetic appeal of that kind of mathematical modeling. And I definitely was bitten by that bug. But then I also learned about biology in high school enough to feel like there were things about biological systems that you just couldn't find in physics because there was also the idea of form and function, right? That you can study living things at the molecular level and discover how very complex functions can arise from the seemingly blind and simple motions uh, and interactions of simple components that have a basic physical description. And I think I was, a, I was interested in that intersection from very early on. And that drew me by the time I was an undergraduate to doing theoretical work on a, a branch of biophysics called protein folding, which I think attracted people who like both of those things I just described in biology and physics because proteins are the molecular workhorses of every living cell. And the problem of understanding how proteins get assembled into the shapes that give them their function is a physics problem with interesting theoretical dimensions to it but it pertains to all of life at the molecular level because all the life we know is made in terms of dry weight, you know, mostly a protein. At least if we talk about single cells, I mean, bones and things like that, it's more complicated, but you get the idea. So applying that forward, I think for a long time, I was laboring in that vineyard with like a few detours. So while I was in the UK, I, I worked in some problems related to embryonic development, but then I went back and studied protein folding more when I was doing my postdoc at Princeton. And I think that in any case, the overarching theme always was I was interested in how you can go from simple physics to the emergence of functional forms at the biological level. But I think I was always studying systems where you go into the biological system and you try to figure out from the perspective of physics what makes it tick. Whether it's more, more deductive in a sense. Um, I guess what I mean is more that the contrast that I'm setting up is there's a difference between coming to a biological system and saying, let me put on my hat as a physicist, look at it from that perspective, and then make sense of how it functions, accomplishes what I consider to be important for its function in terms of its physical properties. There's a difference between that and saying, how do things, according to my understanding of physics, become lifelike? Why do I see the emergence of phenomena like this? Like, if I take the living thing for granted, I can say, all right, here's a protein in it, and it works a certain way. But that's different than saying, if I start with you know, components, dust, like individual seemingly inanimate dumb pieces, and they're going to clump and stick together in various ways, I could describe that in terms of its physical properties. But why and when might I expect that over time I would see that process mature into something that's capable of very compellingly lifelike behaviors? And in retrospect, that was, I guess, maybe kind of in the back of my mind, or I don't know, or at least like implicit in what I was already interested in. But I didn't really think much about that until my postdoc, like 2009 to 2011. And at that point, I was starting to think about, actually, partly because of things I've been thinking about in the preceding years in studying Kumash, one of the things that I was interested in is, is reading the opening passage in Sefer Breshit uh, as being about the relationship between language and creation. Like the idea that the light by which we see the world comes from the way we talk about it. So that's why it's that 
there's a, a precedence to speech that, that gives rise to illumination and, and, and perspective. And then you go down through it and the process of creating Shamayim, which is the heavens, involves naming it, Baikra Shamayim. And the process of creating Aretz, you know, which is the earth, involves naming this Yabasha, this dry thing, Aretz. You know, that, so the, the development of a taxonomy and a description is not separate from the process of creation itself. Of how does it lead to its creation or how does it relate to its creation? I, I think the issue is that if we don't use words to talk about things, then we can't pretend that there actually are natural boundaries between things that unambiguously slice the world up into all of its natural categories and parts. Like it's a very anti-Hellenistic way of looking at the world, but I think this is very much the view of the way I read it in Tanakh and also in Chazal, that basically our construction of a language for talking about what the world is, is like the, the, the sort of final hammer blow on making the world be what it is. Because, or I mean, one has to walk this back a little bit, because I think there's like a complicated idea also, the idea of Davar Hashem, like the, the word of God. In various contexts in Tanakh, I think if you think about what, or, or more broadly in the tradition, the way we understand what the word of God is as far as nature is, I think the idea that there are maybe, you know, natural distinctions between things. Like, you know, one of the things we read in Pesukit Zimrah talks about the melting of ice, you know, and associates it with the word of God. Or we say in the liturgy in the evening, you know, so God through his word brings the evening on. But we don't hear a booming voice in the sky when the evening comes. So what does it mean that in his word he brings on the evening? I think that the point is that night and day is one of the clearest qualitative distinctions that we have in human experience. There is this thing where it's dark and this thing where it's light, and there's a relatively clear line between them that's very regular and predictable. But the world has some very bright distinctions there where it, it, it is easiest to reach for the idea that there should be a name for night because, of course, night is a thing that's different from day. And, and if, of course, it is a freestanding difference independent of, of you know, what word we use. And, and that probably is parallels to some degree. There are certain words where I'm sure like every human language has a word for the sun. Um, right? There's a thing called sun, I would imagine all people would agree. But I don't think every language has the same words for everything. And there certainly are many things, or perhaps most things in the world, that are going to more fall into the category of something where you can slice things up and draw the lines differently. And you are actually completing the creation of the world through your construction of a way of relating to it through language. And you, that, is, that is not separable, in fact, from ideology. And that, I think, is another important understanding in Tanakh, that basically like, how we talk about the world is inseparable from the, the way we're going to choose to act, how we're going to justify our actions, what mission we see ourselves as being on. And so if you're going to be on the mission that the Torah calls us to, then you should talk about the world primarily, or at least first, uh, in terms of, night and day and dry land and sea and birds and fish and men and women, that those are the categories that you start with. And that doesn't mean there's no such thing as electrons or DNA or whatever. It doesn't mean that those aren't also successful ways of talking about the world. They're not as consequential to our mission. Right. They don't, they don't get top billing because they, they're not the the first or even second step uh, in relating to the world as will be most useful for accomplishing the the goals that we're, we're called to accomplish. So, I, I was like riding around with that whole discourse 
in my head because it was sort of what I was like grappling with during grad school, having decided very emphatically and deliberately to take Torah as seriously as I could. And, and, you know, again, fired by this sort of fire in my belly from all the kind of like reaction against the stuff with anti-Israel politics or whatever. And then I think I had this real resolve to kind of say, I'm not going to jettison or throw out what I think makes sense or is true about the world that science can establish. Science seems to work for a lot of things, but holding that in one hand, I'm not going to compromise at all in my attempt to make Torah be the fundamental understanding. And then I have to kind of square those things. And it was like a long process of trying to, to bend and rearrange things and, and, and see what made sense to me. But, but this is like an incredibly long digression to the point which I was going to make, which is that I came out of that partly realizing something that I think ultimately affected the way that I pursued my research, which is that biology and physics are different languages for talking about the same world. And they do construct the world differently. And the fact that they're both part of the natural sciences does not change that. And I think I had real clarity about that realization, actually, because of thinking I'd been doing about Torah and Masib Rashid. But what that helped me to appreciate was I shouldn't be trying to let physics tell me what life is or to, to naturally explain the emergence of life as though life is a word in the language of physics. What I should be trying to think about is what are the physical phenomena that can be well-defined in the language of physics that I would translate into the language of biology intuitively as being the most lifelike. And there are things like self-replication, like making copies of yourself, or predictive computation, that you're, you're going to act in a way that is correlated with your likely future as a result of information that's contained in the statistics of your past, right? Or energy harvesting, like there's something in your environment that has a lot of energy that's only available to you if you're in a very special configuration or you behave in a very special way. Those are things that are well-defined in physical terms, but those are very lifelike behaviors. They're distinctive of life, even if they don't define life. And I think once I had that frame on things, then it suddenly was just clear to me a whole lot of questions I wanted to explore in my research. Such as? Well, so in, in, all, in all of those examples, there are things where you, know, you can start to ask, for example, what does thermodynamics tell us about when self-replication is possible or when it's not possible. So, or when, when it's limited in terms of how fast it can happen. The first paper I wrote in this vein was about given the temperature that you're at and given you're working with material that is of a certain durability, um, how fast can a self-replicator grow according to the laws of thermodynamics? And you know, you're always coming in with modeling assumptions, so you have to start with that. But if you're assuming things that are, are, are fundamental to the, the branch of physics, known as statistical thermodynamics that tend to work pretty well for making predictions in a variety of contexts. You make those assumptions, you can start to place constraints on, well, if I, if I know these things, I can take these physical quantities and say this thing can't make copies of itself more rapidly than such and such. Or you can think about a different kind of question, which is the emergence of things. You could say, right, if I start with a seemingly random, unstructured collection of particles that can stick together in various ways and make different combinations with novel properties, then when do I expect that the physical conditions are conducive to the eventual emergence of something that looks like it's doing energy harvesting? And what I mean by energy harvesting is, let's say there are a trillion shapes that something could have, all the, all, I have some matter and I could have a trillion shapes. Really the numbers are much bigger than a trillion, but you could have a trillion shapes 
And let's suppose that only 10 of those shapes can absorb energy from the environment. If I was just walking along and I found matter in one of 10 of those shapes, I would say, this thing looks like it has a function. This thing looks like it has uh, a form that supports a specific function. And implicitly what I'm doing is I'm comparing it to those other nearly a trillion ways that it doesn't succeed at accomplishing this task. We, we have this kind of null model when we look at the world. When we see things that look like they were a needle in a haystack, that look like they could have naively been some kind of random group of possibilities, but we see a very rare and special possibility stand out from that group, and that's what we're actually observing. That looks to us like it has a, a special history. And when we see that in the biological context, that special history might be described in terms of the evolution of, of living things. When we see that specialness in the context of messages, I mean, language also works that way, right? Like the reason you can tell that I'm saying something to you that has meaning is because it's a highly non-random string of words, right? Like we're actually in many ways very disposed to recognize things that seem very non-random compared with some implicit set of other possibilities in a space of combinations of things. And so I think in the biological context, it was just interesting to me to think about how can you see the emergence of that kind of life-like behavior, like energy harvesting, something that looks like it's smart in some way about dealing with, the, with its environment. And the interesting thing that's come out of that work is that you have the, the opportunity to give a generalization in the language of physics of the Darwinian idea. The Darwinian idea is that things make copies of themselves, living things. And when those copies succeed in reproducing or, or fail in reproducing, the difference between those outcomes ends up communicating successful traits that help you to reproduce to the next generation. But in order to make that argument, you need self-replicators. So the question now is, what if I don't have a self-replicator and I just have stuff, material that can be combined in diverse ways, and I have an environment that is poking it and giving energy to it, but where its ability to receive that energy is dependent on its shape, like the way that a glass only resonates with a song and its surroundings if the glass is in the right shape. So studying the physics of systems like that, you can start to understand how to define conditions in which you do expect a kind of a fine tuning to emerge in the structure of the system that will look to you like an adaptation to the environment in a sense. It will look to you like the system is getting better at something in its relationship to its environment where at the end it will look like it's in a special rare shape that you wouldn't have picked at random that has a special relationship to the environment. You, you can start to define scenarios in which that is expected to happen. And in the same way you expect a ball to roll downhill, so to speak, like that it's, it's, it's a, an expectation of the properties of systems that work according to certain physical rules. So, if those it's, so in, a, in a layman's terms, would this be describing the transition from inanimate to animate? Yeah, although I think it, there's a lot of gray in there because this isn't about going from life to non-life in the sense that being specially structured for energy harvesting is a weaker condition than being alive. Being alive is a bevy of things that, you know, it's everything, every living thing that we know is a self-replicator and an energy harvester and maybe does some predictive things. And there are lots of different aspects to it. So energy harvesting is one aspect of impressively lifelike behavior. But I think the important thing is that you don't need self-replication to get it. And so if that's true, then it kind of changes the way we think about a little bit, perhaps, the way we, we try to envision how life gets going. Although I think that that's really much more speculative than where I want to mostly focus on as far as the consequences of our research. Because you can also just think of this as like a practical question. Like, 
can I make a sort of a computing structure where I don't have to design the way that it computes, I just have to evolve its computational ability as an adaptation. So it's like a material substance where I can sort of rattle it around or shake it or poke it. And I expect at the end that the pattern of how I poked it will give rise to the emergence of some kind of computing or harvesting behavior that I want. And I don't need to design the anatomy of that because I've grown it or evolved it as opposed to making a blueprint of it. So I don't know. I think that the proof will really be more in the pudding as far as that goes that kind of practical application because casting our glances backwards and trying to make models of the past is always like a much more challenging and fraught undertaking since we have only fragmentary evidence of the past and whatever. So I, it is interesting to think about, you know, how life gets going, but I think it's much harder to say things that are definitive. And yet I think a lot of the buzz around some of the research has been precisely in that, in that area. People have, yeah. people have referred to you as you know, the, the next Darwin, the baby Darwin, or different conjugations of yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of that, it has to be said, is more a sign of the times that the internet and the echo chamber and the, the social media game of telephone or whatever is like part of the issue there. And I, and I, and I think that what we're doing on a day-to-day basis in my research group certainly, I hope, is more grounded than some of the things that get said. But yeah, I mean, I think it's understandable that that is the case. And I, I don't want to pretend that I've, I can't conceive of why anyone would see, see the connection, because I think it, it is certainly something that attracts people's fascination to think about how something like life gets going. And I think it also, what we're doing pertains to it insofar as whatever your guess is and what the beginning looks like, this changes what that beginning can be because our far too naive model is that it's like you start with random disordered garbage that is good at nothing and then somehow you go from there to somehow fully formed even a single virus or a single bacterium or whatever i don't you can't start with viruses but you know the things that we know that are really good at self-replication they're so intricate already in their structure that it's like there's this sense of how do you where's how do you make that standing leap and i think that Part of what is missing perhaps in that story is that our naive model should not be that there's random useless garbage. It may be that the toolbox of structures that are in some sense very finely tuned to their environment and have very special and almost functional looking relationships to their environment, that toolbox might be quite rich in the pre-Darwinian era, you know, before you you have clear self-replicators that can co-opt and take advantage of of those tools. And by the way, I think it has to be said that, I mean, this is something, it is much more commonly the case that I I realize post hoc that there's something in Torah that's very connected with something I'm thinking about than the reverse when it comes to science. And I think part of the reason for that is that I think it's both a bad relationship to Torah and also a very confused approach to scientific reasoning to start in Tanakh and then say, how do I develop a physical theory of something? That's a longer discussion. And and there are people that are doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I have criticisms of that approach Despite the fact that, I mean, I absolutely would affirm that my goal and my hope is that I'm planting my feet first in Torah and that that's the fundamental approach to understanding things. But that isn't the same thing as saying, let me look for general relativity there or something like that. But what I will say is that some of these things, especially when it comes to, to life and things related to evolution, they're not, we think of them as, 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 as discoveries of modern science. But they're, they're part of the human condition in general, I think, that without any knowledge of DNA and without any, any knowledge of microscopes and microbiology, 
a human being at any time and place could approach their experience of the world and see things that are alive and see things that are not alive, not alive and notice that things that are alive seem to be made of stuff that's not alive, right? That, you know, the fautashuv, like the idea that you return to dust, that's an accessible idea to a lay person, so to speak. You don't need to be a modern scientist of the 21st century to appreciate that. And if you look at the, the otot that Moshe Rabbeinu gives to Bening Israel or he gives to Moshe first at the sneh, at the burning bush, they can be read many ways, but if you want, they are all about the boundary between life and non-life, right? That the mateh of, of Moshe is like an inanimate object in his hand, and he throws it on the ground, and it turns into a serpent, which is like a living thing. And it's not just a living thing, it's a living thing that resembles a mateh. So in a sense, it's really about a shift in perspective. Like, can you see this part of the world that you think of as being not alive? Can you see it as having the qualities of a living thing in any way? Is there actually kind of a blurred boundary there? And when you go to the next one, like the, the, the tzarat, that is exactly about this kind of blurring of the boundary of a living thing. The skin is a boundary of a living thing. And, and tzarat is a kind of a rupture or a, a, an uncertainty in the boundary of that living thing. And it's another, it plays with that idea of boundary in another way because tzarat is also a kind of boundary between life and non-life because it's very associated in the text with death, death right. in terms of the tara. Uh, and how it parallels the Tara of Tumat Met, the, the impurity of death. And also, Aaron Cohen characterizes Tzarat as being like a stillborn child, like that, that comes out of its mother's womb, not alive. And of course, the last oats, right, is, is exactly what we've been talking about, right? The, you take the water of the Yeov, the, the, the flowing water. So you have the idea of water as one ingredient and also the idea of energy in the sense that it's like moving water. It's the water of a river. It's flowing. You mix it with the dry ground, the, the dirt on the ground, and it becomes dam by yabeshet, right? That it becomes blood on the dry ground. But there's something about just the possibility of novelty in qualitative properties through combinations of components, right? It's so easy to look at this and be like, this is a magic trick that Moshe did. And it's especially easy to relate to it that way because the Chautumim and Mitzrayim, the, the, the sorcerers in Egypt, do the same thing. They also perform a trick like that. But if you relate to it taking it seriously, for the depth of its understanding, and you assume it's smarter than you are, I think it's also saying or observing uh, something about the world, which is that qualitative novelty is a matter of different combinations of the same parts, right? You can take basic building blocks and you can make mud with them or you can make blood with them, and it all depends on how you put them together. And that is the beginning point. I mean, one can go on at length. The Makot and Mitzrayim all have kind of a biological dimension to them if you want to look at them that way and you know frogs jumping out of the water after a mass extinction of fish sounds a lot i mean there's a lot going right. on there but but you know anyway returning just to the internet sort of uh the, the way that people interpret what you're doing or what you've been what you've been working on there do seem to be people drawing theological conclusions but in, in many cases opposite theological conclusions right people saying that really inherently your work Although, you know, I've seen it written that your work is inherently agnostic. That was never my word. That was never your word. Okay. So that's, that's been out there. But people say, oh, this is sort of, you know, God of the gaps. And this is yet another gap closed, another sort of hole plugged in the need for religion. How do you interpret your own discoveries from a theological perspective? And, and how do you sort of respond to those who are hijacking it, so to speak, in that way? So uh, I think, first of all, that as far as 
for my own understanding, you know, theological implications, I think that my approach to an understanding of Torah, limited though it is, and it's always changing and, and evolving, and it's, I think, and I hope greater than it was, I don't know, 10 years ago when I, when I started trying to do this, but there's still a lot to figure out. My understanding of, of, of how the Torah recommends for us to think about this is that there's certainly always the possibility of making models of the world that help you to predict the world and get around in it and make sense of it. And that is most precisely expressed in the Torah by the word chokhmah, right? That the chokhmah and I think the understanding of chumash and maybe Tanakh also certainly involves, in a sense, a kind of a, a craftsman's understanding of how to manipulate the world, right? We just had Prakshat Chuma, right? And we're, we're in the middle of reading about the Chochmat Lev, the, the wisdom of the heart of all these people who know how to smelt the metal and they know how to weave the cloth and they know how to dye the fabric or whatever. And those are things that you could not do without the world being predictable in a way that where its material manipulation can be done reliably. You can't build the Mishkan without it being the case that there's a procedure that will always get you chalet or something like that. Chalet being the azure dye that you know we put on threads and tzitzit and other things. So on the one hand, the world can be related to that way, and indeed we're supposed to relate to it that way in the process of being Ote Hashem and Parshat Trumah with like the building of the Mishkan essentially features that idea, that, that idea of Chochmah. But Chochmah is also something that is very universal and consequently isn't always turned to that purpose. And so the story of Chochmah in the case of Yosef in Mitzrayim is much more checkered because he has the Chochmah to predict the cycles of the natural world and help uh, Mitzrayim sort of even out its booms and busts of agricultural supply. But his Chochmah is turned ultimately to the consolidation of Paro's power and establishes a slave empire that we ultimately taste the bitterness of as a nation, you know, if you fast forward a few hundred years. And so I think that seeing a relationship to the world as being exclusively in terms of our understanding of that which is predictable and manipulable, the essence of that extreme, which becomes a form of idolatry, is in a sense the worship of and subjugation to Pao. I think that is one of the broad themes that you see in Sefer Breshit and Shemot together. And so the antidote to that, of course, is Moshe, who comes to liberate B'nai Israel from Paro. And part of what he does in the course of that is shatter everyone's notion of natural laws. Like he's constantly doing all these nisim and otod. He's doing the miracles to remind people that the models we make of the world that help us get around in it are our constructions. The same way that pyramids are our constructions and Paro's power is our construction. And that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is he's king, he's calling the shots. And when he wants to do something that seems unpredictable to you, he can do it effortlessly. And so I think remembering that natural laws are contrivances of the human imagination and not fixed numbers or algorithms that we discover by turning over rocks, which is more the way people tend to talk about it these days. Remembering that I think is a, a very adult understanding of philosophy of science, even if you're not interested in what's in Tanakh, but I think also from the perspective of Tanakh, it makes it very easy to, to see the, the place that science has and to understand its limitation. It's an approach to experience that focuses on what's objective, that focuses on what's reproducible, that attaches itself 
to the predictability of the world and tries to make models that summarize that predictability. But it's interesting, I mean, isn't, the, isn't it a common pro-theological approach to actually advance the notion of the predictability of laws as a supreme reality and therefore saying, where did that come from? Well, yeah, so you do hear that. I think what's very important about that point in the discussion is that what you're describing is the is best expressed by the, the Pasuk in Tirim that we read, you know, in Bar Nafshi and Rosh Chodesh, uh, right? that, that Hashem made the world and wisdom, and all of his creations are made with a wisdom to them. And I'm, I, I use the word in exactly the right. way that I was establishing to, be, to read that to mean, yes, David HaMelech is marveling that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has made the world with that kind of order to it. But the point is that the same observations in the eyes of someone who has not chosen to be a party to the Brit, to the covenant of Torah, and has not chosen to search for and seek knowledge of God in that perception, can see it totally differently, right? So there are clearly people who look at the world and they look at the law-like predictability of parts of the world, and they want that to be a disproof. Right, like, you don't system, need God right. to explain things this way. Because all you need is simple laws and everything, you know, is, is explained by simple laws. And I don't agree with them that there is no God, but I think they have a point against people who try to claim that there's something self-evident about the role that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has in the world that you see just from seeing how orderly and, and law-like everything is. There clearly are very smart people who know about biology and physics who have the opposite reaction. And so I think what that points to is that it's really about a brief. You know, it's a matter of whether you choose to be a party to a covenant that enjoins upon you that you should talk about it in a certain way. And I think that is the understanding of our tradition, which is why, you know, there's this famous Rashi on the first verses in the Torah, like, why do we have all this stuff about the creation of the world? Why don't we start with the setting of the month and it's Sefer Shemot, because that's the first mitzvah. Why is it that we, we wait that long to get to the mitzvah? And then the answer that, he, that Rashi relays from Chazal um, is that, we need to know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made the world because that way he can give us Eretz Yisrael. And it, you, know, you can read that if you want. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, we have the deed to our property or whatever. But obviously that deed is not going to be respected by someone who doesn't believe right. that the book that we're talking about has this kind of ultimate authority. And so it immediately calls your attention to that kind of contradiction and points out to you that only if you're a party to this belief do you afford credence to it in the first place. And also... I think what it points to is that your description of the creation of the world has an ideological function. It, it is, like we were talking about before, the springboard to the action to which you are called, and that you can't separate your account of what the world is from that. But I think what's also interesting is that the first mitzvah is exactly about the construction of objective natural law. Because Bosh Chodesh, like the setting of the month, if you look at all the stuff in the Mishnah and the Gemara about how you set the month, all these different people have to run into Yerushalayim and bear witness to an observation that they made about the fact that the month has begun because they can see the moon returning. And so it's about the process of constructing a discourse of natural phenomena based on the ideal of objective observation. So it totally parallels the other side of that same point. So I don't know, I didn't... I didn't I didn't fully answer what you asked before, yeah. but sorry, I'll let you... No, no, go ahead. And I was going to say, in sort of how you respond to those who look at this as yet another hammer and sort of the, the God of the gaps kind of argument. And I, I think that with when it comes to that 
whole thing. I mean, I certainly appreciate there are a lot of people who have been eager to take buzz surrounding my research more than the research itself and treat it like it's another stake in the heart of the need for an interventionist God in the world because you, you could previously explain how you get birds from dinosaurs, but you couldn't explain how you get cells from primordial soup. And now this is finally starting to, you know, that whole way of talking about exactly. it. And most parties to that, you know, scrimmage, I think are very confused, both, you know, on either side of the line, because I think when we're, when we're talking about God of the gap stuff, I think what one has to acknowledge, first of all, is that there's a much less substantial contraction of gaps than people like to pretend in the sense that what science mostly is is a summary of how the world can be made to be predictable through controlled experimentation or under ideal settings of observation. But science can't tell me whether I'm going to miss or catch a bus when I get up in the morning. The individual experience of particular moments in time is as unpredictable as it ever was because those moments always have their particular limiting through repeated observations and attempts to exert experimental control. So when when Akadosh says to Moshe, like I will be what I will be, and he he identifies himself with the empirical question of what will happen, right? That you do not know what will happen until it happens, and that what does happen is the moniker of Boreolam, creator of the world, identifies himself to you in terms of what is and what will be. What that, I think, among other things, calls attention to is that you, you can have whatever model you want of what, how the world is supposed to work. And it could most of the time be very reliable. But in one singular instance, your prediction is not in any way guaranteed to be correct. But the ultimate expression of this is Kriyat Yamsuf, because the whole thing there is that when you go to the edge of a sea, you do not in any way ex- expect it to split and create a pathway for you to walk through with the water standing like a wall on your left and on your right. And kriot yamsuf are not things that we do every day, and they're not part of the fabric of uh, reproducibility by definition. The nes, the idea of a, a nes or a, a sign from a kadosh baruch that comes to us in the unexpected and the unpredictable, is exactly in the way that if we stake everything on risking it all to serve Hashem, and that is our own account of, of how and why we are where we are when we find ourselves in dire straits, and then something completely unexpected happens that takes us through to the other side and saves us. We have the potential and the ability and the opportunity to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu there with us at that moment. But science has nothing to say about that moment. I mean, you, or in the sense that you can always backsolve and say, this time when the sea split, was it this thing that isn't usually the case or that thing that usually the case that made it so that it split, although, although it usually doesn't? And, and you can always engage in that work if you want, but that's the, that's the approach to understanding experience that seeks to eliminate a Kadosh Baruch Hu's role from your account of events. And that isn't necessarily, I think, always the wrong way to talk about the world in the sense that it's part and parcel to having a relationship to the world that's partly practical. Mitzvot, they're given to us to seek, to attempt to accomplish them within the framework of what seems natural and expected. So I don't expect that I'll have wine for Kiddush unless I go out and buy a bottle of wine or, you know, crush some grapes and ferment them or whatever, right? I have to do something. And of course, a Baruch who could 
give me a bottle of wine by an unexpected mechanism, but do I merit that? Or in a particular moment, you know, if I'm just doing it to test God, I obviously don't. So I, I think that partly this whole discussion of God of the gaps is silly to me because it's a misapprehension of what kind of unpredictability really presents us with the best opportunities to see the role of Hashem in the world. You know, Purim, which is coming up, focuses on unpredictability. It is named for the casting of a lot. And the lot that was cast in the month of Nisan, Nun Samech, for Nes, or the miracle of Purim, came up such that Haman gave a whole year to the Yehudim to prepare because he waited until the month of Adar to go after them. It could have come up for Sivan, right? They could have had much less time. And, and your choice, the choice before you in Migilat Esther, which doesn't even mention the name of Akados Baruch Hu, is to look at the outcome of that roll of the die and say, do I see blind, chaotic chance? Like, wow, we dodged a bullet. That was a lucky coincidence. Or do I choose to give acknowledgement for involvement in all of these events and particularly for my ability to recognize that he has our back in, in the ones that are the least predictable to me, the ones that seem the least natural to me. So, I mean, that's like well, one way of approaching this whole God of the Gaps thing. I think the other thing is like specifically with like origins of life, there's a whole separate thing we have to bracket, which is how do we generate accounts of the past? And what are the ways that we make models of our, our history and what got us where we are? And is it really true that when everything is said and done, there's only going to be one account that's left standing that contains truth or is it possible that depending on what language we're speaking, we're going to talk about the past in different ways and, and that's okay, right? Like, so I put on one hat and talk about billions of years or talk about meteoric destruction of dinosaurs or what have you. And why on earth would I expect that only in that single language, that safa achat udvarim achadim, right? That single way of talking, could there be something that coheres or makes sense about the world? Are, are there not you know, other ways of giving accounts uh, that could be equally informative, or if not equally, even more so, could they be of greater fundamental significance? You know, do they, do they give me an account of what got me where I am that enables me to do the things I should be doing instead of being an account that alienates me from my current circumstances? Maybe more of a, so a spiritual are, or moral account rather than a historical account. Well, yeah, I don't, I, but I'm always reluctant to put it precisely that way because I think the society we live in has such a, a sense of the prevailing authority of forensic ideas about the past that when we say historical, you can't help but hear this is the one that's actually true in sort of the background right. use of the term. But, but, but I think that the Torah is very interested in complicating that, right? If you go to the story of Yosef again, Yosef in his own lifetime, there are two separate instances in which he is accused, or a story is told about him on the basis of forensic evidence that is plausible, which he himself could refute, right? First with the Ketonet Pasim, that his brothers present his coat to Yaakov, and they say that, you know, they cover it with blood, and then everyone concludes that he was torn by a wild beast. And then with Eshet Potiphar, with the wife of his boss when he's in Mitzrayim, uh, which he holds up his garment and says he tried to rape her, and in between what you have is the story of Yudan Tamar. And Yudan Tamar, and this is an observation my wife first made to me, and it's one of my favorite, and I think it's really wonderful. Yudan Tamar, the story you have, is it's not about forensic authentication, it's about covenantal authentication, because Tamar presents Yudan with 
the signs he gave her that will have unambiguous meaning to him that it doesn't even matter in a sense if she was the Zona that he met in Timna, she knows his secret, right? This is a message to him, whether it's from her or from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's an unambiguous password that authenticates and immediately reminds of and connects him to a moment that he was a part of. And so we, we take for granted that we know that you know, she was in fact the Zona, but from his perspective, in a sense, that's irrelevant. It's a password from a Kadosh Baruch Hu that he recognizes. And you can read it totally differently in the sense that he may be deciding to deal differently with her, not because he's realizing that actually he's the one who's responsible for her current situation, but rather because he realizes a mistake he made um, uh, in dealing with her, right? That she's in this situation because of his refusal to give her Shela, his third son, or maybe because he forced Onan to marry her when maybe he didn't want to, and he should have given her Shela the whole time, which is why Onan's name means complaining, and Shela's name means hers. So <laughs> there are different ways you could go with this, right? But it all depends on how willing you are to have a covenantal relationship to the evidence you see instead of a forensic one. I'm just curious, sort of in, in wrapping up, how is your orientation, your disposition received within the scientific community? Um, I, I mean, I think that, you know, when it comes to talking about stuff in the domain of the natural sciences, people are pretty focused on that. And the conversations that I tend to have with people tend to be about technical things and, and, and things that are, are very much rooted in the work. And I think that there's probably a sense of professionalism about not bringing some of these other things into the discussion too much. So I, because I, I think maybe the sort of background or implication of your question, if I can point to it a little bit, is that there's certainly a lot of reluctance about the idea of the value of biblical religion and belief in God that you find in quarters that are highly technically educated and sophisticated in natural science, especially at the level of people who are making the discoveries and whatever. And I think that that is a cultural thing that has you know, very understandable origins. I haven't ever come across to date someone who you know, would directly kind of attack me to my face about this stuff. They're just whispering behind your back. I like to, to, to hope that, you know, for the most part, that's not the case. I'm sure it you know, varies from person to person. I, don't, I have bigger problems than that in a sense, because what I actually need to work harder to manage is that because there's a, a certain amount of popular reaction to some of the implications of the research that's kind of salacious, even leaving aside anything to do with religion, but just like people are interested in origins of life, Scientists are very restrained and conservative by nature in their willingness to sort of declare victory for anyone as they should be. And I'm very far from any kind of real victory in this regard. And so having like overexcited people on the internet declaring victory for me is, is kind of a, a- Gives them some, uh, some ammunition, doesn't it? It's a double-edged double sword. So uh, I don't know, I think that that's more significantly the issue than uh, as far as my, my direct encounters with pushback I, I think that's more of the issue. What other things are you involved with in your life? You have family, sounds like. What, what yeah. other hobbies uh, that are outside the laboratory? So, Baruch uh, Hashem, we have a son who's almost four named Elchanan, and uh, a son who's, I guess, two and a quarter now, roughly, named Azaria. And they are 99% of my hobbies right now <laughs> uh, because there isn't a lot, a lot of time for anything else. Um, 
at the moment. Uh, the things that I am always struggling to try to make time for when I can, what takes top priority is Talmud Torah and trying to improve my Hebrew and, and, and things like that, because I think you know, that, that's the mindset of our family and, 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 and what we're, we're thinking about. But, um, you know, I, I used to have more time to read things and, and one day, again, I, I expect to read a novel or something like that. In, in the future, do you see yourself, maybe you referenced this just now, perhaps alluded to it, do you see yourselves moving to Israel? Is that a goal? What's next in the no, horizon I, for you? Yeah, I think we're very happy in the community that we're in right now. And I think for a lot of family reasons, we're connected to the place that we're in. But I think Israel is always on our mind and we're always thinking about how to maximize the amount of time that we spend there, which has in the last few years been very challenging. Right. Um, and in the longer term, I think that um, we, we've just been reading Parshat Truma, we're about to read Parshat Tetzaveh, and they're real favorites of mine, because I think that there's a big piece of the Torah that has just been dormant for a very long time, because we haven't had any kind of opportunity to pursue or accomplish the mitzvot that are delineated there. But I really take very seriously the idea that we should be trying to keep the whole Torah, um, and I think it's very exciting to live in a time when we're starting to be able to do things that we, we hadn't been able to do for thousands of years, in Eretz Yisrael, and I, I believe very much in that project and, and want to be a part of it. So, you know, looking ahead to when Bezat Hashem, we can be making korbanot and, and we can be resurrecting and rejuvenating a lot of aspects of our tradition that have had to be asleep for a long time. Definitely something that I, Bezat Hashem, want to be a part of, and I can't imagine being a real part of without spending uh, enough of my time there. So as much as we can, you know, again, within the constraints of the laws of physics and other things that we, we feel constrained by at the moment, although it may be illusory. <laughs> A wonderful and appropriate conclusion and yearning for the future for the England family and really for the entire Jewish people. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeremy England. It was, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.